Welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carrie is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carrie is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please welcome your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show, the only Internet radio show dedicated to giving you real solutions to improve your health. Not only are they real solutions, but they're natural solutions as well, because, as you know, the one and only true wealth you have is your health. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc, and I'm committed to helping you find the root cause of your health problem, fix the cause with natural treatments so you can feel normal again and live your life to the fullest. Today's topic is about how to improve our memory, natural solutions for dementia and Alzheimer's. I'm so very excited about my guest today. Her name is Dr. Marilyn Glenville. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Marilyn Glenville is the UK's leading nutritionist specializing in women's health. She is an inspiring public speaker, easy to listen to, and very practical in her approach. Dr. Glenville is the former president of the Food and Health Forum at the Royal Society of Medicine. She is the award-winning author of 15 internationally best-selling books, including Natural Solutions for Dementia and Alzheimer's, available from Amazon. Marilyn, thank you so much for being my special guest today on this episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. You're welcome. Thank you very much for the invitation, Dr. Carey. So 15 books. I've got to say that's quite impressive. I only have one book under my belt working on my second. (laughs) Uh, Yes, I do enjoy writing them. I also have a clinic. I've got a clinic in Harley Street in London and also outside of London. So I mix the clinical work with the research for the books. And it is very useful looking at what's going on in the academic literature and how we can use that and give that information to patients we see and talks that I give to give them really practical tips of things they can make changes with. So I wanted to ask you, when you were doing research for your book, Natural Solutions for Dementia and Alzheimer's, what did you learn? What were some of the shocking things that you learned? Well, I learned actually that there isn't going to be at the moment a pharmaceutical drug out there. I think over the last 15 years, there hasn't been a new one. And the clinical trials that have been coming through, they've had to be stopped. Some know better than a placebo, some where the side effects are too strong. And I think what struck me was when you're looking on the pharmaceutical side, they are looking for the magic bullet. And like you practice, it's thinking of people as a whole person. And it's when you look at the research and you look at all the different aspects that have been looked at for dementia and and Alzheimer's, we see then that really it needs to be attacked, if we call it that, from different aspects at the same time. And that's when people are going to get the benefit. There isn't, I don't think, going to be a magic bullet for dementia. And we need to look at this in a different way. Yeah, I recently took a course with Dr. Dale Bredesen, and I'm sure you mm. know who he is. Yes. Um, and he describes it as, and I think this is brilliant, a roof with 36 holes in it or yes. more. And, and just yeah. one drug to do all of those things is unrealistic, first of all. And like, like you said, um, in the last 15 years, there's not been a new drug coming out of the pipeline. It's not looking good. We have to find 
alternative solutions. So what are some of the statistics on dementia and Alzheimer's that you found, especially when it relates to women? Because it's kind of shocking. It is shocking. And it came out at the beginning of this year. It was this in the UK. I'm sure it's worldwide as well in the developed countries that actually now Alzheimer's or dementia uh, and uh, Alzheimer's and other types of dementia is now the biggest killer for us as women, causing three times more deaths than breast cancer. For men, it's the third biggest killer. But this news now that dementia is the biggest killer for women has really been quite a shock. And it does mean we really do need to think about putting in action plans for women at a much younger age, getting that information out there and really putting the focus on prevention rather than just putting funding towards the treatment. And since this new statistic came out, and like you said, it's the number one killer now of women, um, I'm hoping in the future, like we see so much... um, information research going into breast cancer and of course this has toppled breast cancer but hoping to see more information getting out there about this and like you said about prevention yes and i would like to see that and i think what a lot of people don't realize and what was quite striking in the research that there is a 20 to 30 year interval before the first development of the amyloid plaque, which is characteristic of Alzheimer's, and the onset of dementia. So what I felt from the research, it was no matter what our age is, it is never too late to start taking preventative measures. And the earlier we could do this, I think it's because breast cancer can be so much more obvious for people. This is a much more slower change. People may not be aware that their memory is not as sharp as it used to be and that things could be done much earlier on. I think the awareness isn't there. And like you said, if we could get that awareness out there, I think people, both men and women, could put putting steps into place much earlier in life. So 20 to 30 years is a huge window. It is. And that's the difficulty is if because, you know, we think of cause and effect, I suppose it's like same with the smoking and lung cancer story, that it took so many years for it to be known that this was cause and effect, that because the gap is so huge in time that people think, you know, you've got a lot of time to do this, but we do need to put these you know these steps in place in especially for us as women in our 30s would be good to think about how do we keep ourselves healthy we're aiming to do that you know physically but we also have to think about this mentally as well so this window really starts in our 40s and 50s and for some people actually in their 30s Yes, it does. And it is really important to, to think about what we, can we do. And I think when we look at the research, a lot of it is showing that actually what we do to keep our body healthy is going to keep our brain healthy as well. And will reduce the other things like cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, you know, even cancer. So I think this information needs to get out there for people to see that actually this is going to be a brilliant preventative measure for if we call it all of our or most of our degenerative illnesses. So if you're a listener out there in your 40s and 50s and your memory is starting to slip a bit, your brain feels a little bit foggy, you have a having some difficulty with focus concentration, these are some of the very basic um, symptoms that could uh, eventually lead to 
you know, the progression into dementia and Alzheimer's, right, Marilyn? Yes, I think uh, definitely to pick up things like that. And I know for many women, especially going through the menopause, they say to me, well, you know, I go into a room, I can't remember what I went in there for, I'm reading a book, I end up reading the page again because I didn't, you know, take anything in into, I didn't remember any of it at all. So it is thinking about, well, you know, if you are noticing, it's not, it's not going to mean that you're going to get dementia, but if you realize that your memory isn't as sharp already, then okay, take steps because you'd prefer to have a sharper memory than having to write lists all the time. So it may not be a symptom of dementia, but it's still you want to improve your memory anyway. So I would say, yes, think about these measures that we can see in the medical literature that are very strong, good research there, and put those into place as soon as you know about them. Yeah, so I'm thinking fundamentally, if a person is having difficulty with their brain, with their cognition, with their thinking, they they do have on some level some amount of brain degeneration going on. And not everybody will ultimately get dementia, but that's something, that's a warning sign that you can start addressing today. Yes, definitely. And it is important because people who have had a good memory and I know a lot of women have spoken to me in my cl- and in my clinic. They're in their working environment, and they're realizing that actually they have to write everything down. They've got lists and lists, whereas before they could have remembered it just on the tip of their tongue. It would have been very easy. So as soon as somebody notices that things are more difficult, it is, yes, do something now because it's going to make working life and family life much easier anyway. You're going to feel more confident in yourself. And also, though, it could be working on something more serious coming about later in life if this is left and not changed. Yeah, and I was thinking, too, yeah, you, the individual person, if you feel like your your brain is starting to slip, like the steeper that decline happens, the the really the more I think serious you have to start looking into um, these things that Marilyn is going to talk to us today about how to you know help our brain be more healthy. Yes, I think it is really important, and there are certain um, dementias which are very early onset, and they're more unusual, and people do often ask me, is it genetic? We do know there are strong family history risks, but is it absolutely genetic? And an interest in the research into that shows that there is a variant of a gene that can increase the risk but does not cause it. So the answer at the moment is no, it's not genetic because some people will carry this variant and never go on to develop dementia. And there are others with, um, without this variant who get dementia anyway. So yes, there may be strong family history risk. And I think if people see that and know that and are getting memory changes, it is worth taking some steps now. But it's absolutely not at the moment known that it has this real genetic component that one could be tested and know for sure except in these very more unusual cases where it's happening much earlier in life but I think most of us know that we have somebody very close to us and we've had that situation either as a carer or just down the family line where we know now that we ought to take more steps than somebody else who doesn't have that risk in their family. So I think you bring up a very good point because I think in the research they say the APOE4 gene, if you have a double APOE4, 
yes. that you're at 50 to 90% increased risk of developing dementia and Alzheimer's. But like you said, the gene doesn't say everything. It's really about your lifestyle. And and it's your lifestyle, how you live your life, what you eat, what you drink, your stress, your exercise, all of that stuff that actually influences how that these genes are expressed ultimately. Mm. So we have, think, we have a lot of control over it. We do. And I think that's what we've learned over the last decade or so that everybody thought that genes were fixed and yes we may have a variant of a gene but it's like you said it may either be switched on or switched off it may be expressed or may not and what the genetic um, research is showing now that we have this genetic makeup and then we have this environment that we live in and this environment includes everything else that's not our genetic makeup. So it is our diet, it's our lifestyle, it's our stress, it's the exercise, everything else. And that would and can determine whether that gene gets expressed or not. So we may carry a higher genetic risk, but depending on how we live our life, then changes whether actually that's going to express itself and we would end up with that condition in the long term. So Marilyn, obviously you're a very busy woman. You've written 15 books. You're (laughs) running multiple clinics. How do you keep your memory so sharp? Well, I do try to uh, walk the talk, as they say. And I think for me, because I'm a nutritionist, I have to say that food and our diet is the foundation of our health and for me that is really the what we should be putting a lot of emphasis on there's wonderful research on top of that about nutrients and exercise and other things like brain training but it is this pillar that underpins everything and the research and as we know with the cardiovascular side is really putting the emphasis on the mediterranean diet that it is linked to a reduced incidence of cognitive decline and it is thinking about all those fresh fruit and vegetables oily fish all of those antioxidants coming in from the different pigments in the fruit and vegetables and what's really interesting doing the research for my book is that in terms of the increased risk of alzheimer's the experts are now suggesting it should be called type 3 diabetes so what is coming clear is that we need to keep our blood glucose our blood sugar in balance along with all the components of the mediterranean diet but it is making sure that our insulin and glucose is kept under control because that has such a significant effect in terms of dementia. So Marilyn, I totally agree with you that diet is the key foundation to build from. Otherwise, nothing else is really going to work for very long or at all. And and you definitely cannot supplement your way out of this. (laughs) Like you need to start with a good foundation. So diet, so Mediterranean diet. And then what are your thoughts on the, like a healthy ketogenic diet well i think it needs to be balanced and obviously now there's quite a lot of research on coconut oil and using those in order to fuel the brain because our understanding is now that our brains can become insulin resistant so we can get the fuel from ketones when we're not getting it from the glucose side so there's now quite a lot of work on using coconut oil or the medium chain fats, but coconut oil, if we're doing it in a more natural version, to help with brain function. So it's interesting to see the research going down that line and making sure that people are following a healthy diet 
and including as much of the different nutrients from those foods within the diet. And then obviously, I would say checking for deficiencies. But interest in that research now on using the ketones, particularly as a fuel for the brain, when the brain can become insulin resistant, the same as the body can. So besides ketones, what are some of the other key nutrients that can help keep the mind and memory sharp? Well, I think the one that stands out on its own from all the research is actually the omega-3 fatty acids, and particularly the DHA, which is one of the major omega-3 fats in the brain. And the research it shows actually has the most protective effect against Alzheimer's and can help prevent the plaque forming. And interestingly, also very good for other types of dementia, like vascular dementia, where there's an issue of blood flow to the brain. So this explosion of omega-3 information in the research has been really useful in terms of having this particular benefit in terms of uh, Alzheimer's and also vascular dementia. And there was a brilliant trial uh, a few years back where they took blood samples from people to measure their omega-3 levels and then used MRI scans and they tracked them and performed these over eight years. And they found that the hippocampus, which is the crucial part of the brain for cognitive function, which actually shrinks in Alzheimer's, was the smallest in those with the lowest omega-3 levels. So it has become apparent that it is really important to get enough of these omega-3s within the diet, like the oily fish, egg yolks, flax seeds, chia seeds. And for some people, it may be important to actually test, to do a blood test to see whether their levels are good enough and if not, as well as what's going on with the diet to actually supplement and then retest maybe three months later to make sure these levels are back to normal. Because it has been something that's so apparent in the research that it has such a beneficial effect on brain function that we do need to know what our levels are. Yeah, actually, now that you say that, I just had a patient uh, this week who her omega-3 test, and, and like you said, it's a blood test, came back, and she's a vegetarian. Her her arachidonic acid levels, which are the unhealthy fats, were actually really good. And her EPA, which is the anti-inflammatory form, you know, part of the omega-3, was just above normal, but, you know, could be better, but definitely her DHA was too low. Mm. So like you said, there's many different food sources for DHA. You can also supplement with it. And then if you really want to know, you could also get tested. So besides diet and nutrients, what else should we be doing to help keep our memory sharp and help our brain for the long term? Well, I think the a couple of other ones that I think are important are the B vitamins, which has had some really good research from Oxford University where they used particular B vitamins B6, B12 and folic acid at particular levels but not extremely high 90% less brain shrinkage compared to a placebo so again it's making sure people have got enough of these nutrients and getting good levels coming from the diet and I think the other one where we do need to get it from not necessarily dietary sources because it isn't high in those and where a lot of research in terms of our general health is focused is actually on vitamin D and we have had issues 
in the UK now where we've got rickets back in children that we thought we'd got rid of 50, 40 years ago. So they are showing that even if you're moderately deficient in vitamin D, you could have a 69% increased risk of Alzheimer's. And also, you know, it could be if you're severely deficient up to 122%. So again, it is coming as we know from the manufacture through the skin and exposure to sunlight, but it would be one of those that I would say that everybody really should test and make sure their level is good because our body does not expect for us to get much of this, it's actually a hormone, not a nutrient, but much of this hormone from our food. So again, it's one of those which I think is important to be tested, definitely. I agree with you too. And in the UK, is that part of the uh, government health system is to regularly test patients for their vitamin D? I'm just curious. It isn't actually, and it should be. And even with my osteoporotic patients, it isn't routinely tested. We have a government recommendation now that all pregnant women and children under the age of five should be on vitamin D every day because they realize that a you know, a pregnant woman could be giving birth to a vitamin D deficient baby. And we have all been told as adults that through our winter months, we should be on vitamin D for immune function. But it's not routinely tested. And some people do get a struggle. Most people in the UK pay privately to get it tested because of it's not done on our National Health Service, unfortunately. And it should be particularly for certain vulnerable groups of people. It's very similar in Canada as well, Marilyn, that routinely vitamin D is not tested. And if you do want to have it tested, you have to pay out of your pocket and usually go through a private um, doctor or a naturopathic doctor like me. Um, But yeah, I, I routinely see people low. And even on the recommended dose, which in Canada is like 1,000 IUs or 2,000 IUs, very, very often they're still deficient. So it's just like not enough. So like you, I do recommend if there's something to test, you should definitely test for vitamin D. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it's then easy to correct. And then because now when the research is so widespread on its benefits that and we wouldn't necessarily feel we've we've got a a vitamin D deficiency, we're not going to have the symptoms around it. So somebody's either deficient or they're not, it needs to be corrected. And it's not overly expensive to do. So I think it's worth people paying for it if they can't get it done on the, you know, the, the health scheme in the country that they are. And then you also mentioned B6, B12, and folate. And does, does that have to do with its relation to homocysteine? Yes, it does. And I think anyway, with the research, the biggest benefits were on those with high homocysteine levels. Um, And obviously those three B vitamins do help to lower it. So there has been research looking at obviously the negative effects of high homocysteine and its link to um, dementia. And they're suggesting that if somebody's level of homocysteine is greater than 14 it it could double their risk of developing alzheimer's so we do have good measures from the research of how you know it's better if it could be kept under 10 but at least we're seeing that the research has been done but to include to definitely to include them and to show and they had scans to show you know you've got 90 percent less brain shrinkage compared to a placebo group so you know that some of these results are quite striking and definitely worthwhile when you're talking about just a few b vitamins on a regular basis 
Yes, it's really not that difficult. And, and what I learned is that ideally you want to keep your homocysteine below 7. Ah, uh, yes, yes. I think we've got it as below 10 in the UK. But yes, if below 7 is even better than that would be a good good number to aim for. So um, can we talk a little bit about exercise and brain health? Yes, and that's an interesting one. And we all think about, we almost have to think about our brain as a muscle and that like our muscles in the hip hop body, they're going to atrophy if we don't use it. And so interesting with exercise, they have looked at it in terms of boosting brain function. And there's been some good studies, some of them even over eight years or more, that those who were most active had a 30% lower risk of cognitive decline. And interestingly, when they looked at it, and this, it wasn't the intensity of the exercise that made the difference, it was actually the amount. So even when they looked at walking, it was the distance people walked was more important than how fast the participants walked. And there's also some, been good, some good research on mixed kinds of exercise doing a mix of ex, um, sort of aerobics with strength and stretching. And with some of the studies, these were only um, over 12, over four weeks, 12 sessions over four weeks, just 30 minutes, three, three days a week. So it wasn't even a big ask to do. It was just making sure that people were at least doing something over a few days in the week was making a striking difference on brain function and some of the suggestions are that there may be some of the exercises like if we think of dancing or something like that where there will also be a social aspect to it because the social side is important for brain function and there will be a memory component so with some of the aspects of dancing people are learning steps so some exercises may bring in a number of benefits together because of the kind of exercise that it is. But I think for other people who don't like to dance or, you know, don't want to go to the gym, even walking is going to make a difference. But it seems to be that the the distance we go is even more important than the intensity. So the key being, you do not need to become an Olympic athlete. You just need to move. You just need to move and to move on you know, a few days a week is going to make a difference. And I think, you know, what it's doing is obviously coordination, but it's blood flow. So there's lots of different benefits. And then if one can go out in a social group, the social side of it can be even beneficial too. So it's just thinking about what can we put into. And I think because of our lives have changed, we don't have the same sort of exercise built into our ordinary daily lives we basically have to make the time to do it it's not going to be part and parcel of what we do in our daily life as it would have been a couple of generations ago so we have to make a bit of an effort to fit the exercise in because it's not going to happen naturally as it was would in a more physically active lifestyle that people had years ago I was actually watching a, a video um, lecture. I forget this woman's name, but she founded the ApoE4.info website. Um, anyway, so she was talking about her journey, finding out that she was ApoE4 positive, and I forget if she had one gene or two. And just, you know, all of the different things she was working on, her diet, her sleep, her exercise. And one of the things that she said really struck me, and she said, you know, now when I clean my house, 
it's not just cleaning my house. This is exercise. Mm. So just like having that thought change can, can yes. shift, you know, everything. So even just simple cleaning your house is a form of exercise. Yes. And it could be, well, I'm going to walk up the stairs. I'm not going to take the escalator. Yes. So, yeah. or the elevator. It could be something. See, believe it's only a couple of floors. We could fit these other extra bits in on a, if we just, like you said, if we become a bit more aware that this actually is exercise that we could fit in in different ways that we have got automatically out of that thinking around it because we do things that are so labor saving now that we don't need we're not so physically active so so again for the listeners out there when you think of exercise i want you to think of movement just get and move yes exactly yes any anything that's going to you just move our bodies it doesn't have to be that we have to go to a class or we have to go to the gym so Marilyn, now that we've spoken about a physical exercise for the body, what about some of these like brain training exercises, exercises for the brain specifically? Yes, and again, it is that muscle, it is that use it or lose it. And the research is showing actually we don't need any fancy apps or gadgets, although people could use it, those if they want. But they have looked at just traditional things that we might have done, such as playing board games and also, you know, um, chess, card games, that sort of thing. So all of those can be really useful. And again, we'll have the social aspect in there, but reading, doing crosswords, and just the research on doing crosswords has been found to be particularly beneficial, delaying memory decline by two and a half years. So there are simple things that can be done. Good research on learning a musical instrument. Again, not everybody wants to do that, but if it's something that now somebody has got time because maybe they've retired, it may be something that, you know, they've put off, but it could be so useful in terms of cognitive function. And things like learning a second language. It's all about if we can make our brains think differently, do different things that maybe you know, we haven't done before. We are forming new networks. We are keeping it active and stimulated. So, and there's been some wonderful research on nuns living um, fairly elderly lives. And then there's been an ongoing research where they have donated at the end of their life brains to a particular university. And what's been interesting is when they autopsy these brains and take slices of them, these brains of these nuns look exactly like they have Alzheimer's. You would say that from the picture that they can see of this particular slice of the brain. But they have also been tracking these nuns every year and giving them tests and seeing what their cognitive function is like. And yet they have not shown any signs of Alzheimer's on the tests. And when you look at what they're doing, they're playing Scrabble, they're going out to meet the community, they're playing cards with people, they are very active and stimulated all the time. So even though they can see that morphology on the brain scan, on the slices of their brain, they have not shown any symptoms whatsoever. So it is for me clear that it is use it or lose it with our brain function. And we really do need to make the effort, but to choose things that we enjoy, because then people are more likely to keep those things going. 
So next thing I wanted to ask you was about our environment. Is there is there environmental factors that can be putting us at risk of dementia? Yes, there are. And I think people need to be aware of some of the over-the-counter medicines that people might be using for colds and flu. Sometimes they may be for heartburn. And they contain anticholinergics, which actually block the chemical acetylcholine. And we know that people with Alzheimer's have low levels of this. And that's how a lot of the Alzheimer's drugs work, by keeping acetylcholine high in the brain. And they are really looking at making sure that people who have any memory changes maybe think about different kinds of medication. And where some of the research has gone now are on these proton pump inhibitors, which are used very commonly to reduce acid reflux. And they're now suggesting that it could increase the risk of dementia by up to 44% because they actually increase plaque levels in the brain. So, There may be medications that people are taking that are actually increasing their risk. So I think it's worth them speaking to their doctor, especially if they're noticing any memory changes, to see whether there may be an alternative medication or whether they can be helped nutritionally to actually then get the digestive system working more efficiently and not needing some of these antacids that may be affecting their brain health. So for the listeners out there, I mean, you can easily do an internet search and find the list of medications that impact acetylcholine. And and Marilyn, like you said, that there's a whole list. And, there is and, a whole and it list. can be very common things that people are taking. Yes, and I have there are some for sleep problems as well. And the research is clear now that our sleep is so important in terms of Alzheimer's risk and really important in terms of making sure that we get a good chunk of sleep during the night. So again, people may be taking remedies to try and help them sleep, but those remedies may actually be increasing the risk of Alzheimer's, but they need to have be given some help in terms of a routine at bedtime in order to have good sleep, because we know during that sleep, the cerebral spinal fluid actually washes out toxins. And interesting, the research is suggesting that our best sleep position is actually on our side. So we may toss and turn in the night, but if we can sleep on our side, they they talk about this this fluid actually washing out brain waste chemicals. So it's almost like a house cleaning system that's happening as we sleep. So really important to make sure whatever age we are, but especially as we're getting older, that we are getting good quality sleep. I didn't know that that part about sleeping on your side and helping the cerebral spinal fluid. That's pretty interesting. It is, yes. And I know some people may sleep on their backs all the time, but the sleep position on the side seems to allow this cerebral spinal fluid to wash out more efficiently. And it's interesting when they look at the studies on mice is as we go to sleep, the brain itself changes in a way that allows this fluid to flow more easily. The brain gets slightly smaller or inside. So the channels where this fluid flows it are much wider and able to flow more easily. And then we wake up and everything resets itself again. So that's why the sleep is so important. And then on our side seems to allow the fluid to almost flow through much more efficiently to clear out all the debris 
from that day so that we've got a new start when we're waking up in the morning so we often think of sleep as recharging our batteries which it does but it's having this profound effect on our brain health by having a, a good clean out during the night so Marilyn we just have a few minutes left I just want to talk about some testing what tests do you think are really more the most important for helping uh, people, you know, assess their brain and, and assessing for some of the underlying factors. You, you've already mentioned the omega-3s, mm. you know, maybe that test. Vitamin D, that's important. Homocysteine, that could be tested. Are there any other tests that you think are, are really, you know, like at the top of the list? Yes, I would say the HbA1c, which is the one that we now over here, everybody checks for risk of diabetes instead of just looking at glucose levels and I think it's so important because they now though that people with type 2 diabetes will have over a 50% risk of developing Alzheimer's so we want to know that this HbA1c glycosylated hemoglobin is at a good level low so that it's not going to increase the risk of type 2 diabetes but also not Alzheimer's so I think it is one of the most important just general ones that people could ask their doctor to get and in the clinic I we do test for heavy heavy metals the toxic metals um, everybody thinks about mercury and we, we used to talk about being a mad hatter because they used to use mercury when they were making hats in the olden days but there are concerns that it could be toxic to the brain and also aluminium controversy there still but I think it's always err on the side of caution so I think measuring the toxic metals like mercury and aluminium could be very important because some people may have had exposure it may be dental amalgams it may be in previous jobs that they've had as well so I think there are certain tests that could be very useful just to either make sure somebody is not deficient in particular nutrients correcting any imbalances, making sure the toxicity isn't there and just checking that, you know, something like the risk of type 2 diabetes because the nutritional side that they would work on prevention for that is going to be very similar to what they're working on for their brain health. So we don't want to become insulin resistant in our bodies and we don't want that to be happening in our brain either. Marilyn, you have given us such great information today. How can our listeners find out more about you and where can they get a copy of your book? Well, the book Natural Solutions for Dementia and Alzheimer's is available from Amazon. It's either digital or a hard copy. And I have a website called marilynglendal.com and they can find out all the information about me and you can get in touch as well at reception at glenvillenutrition.com. So they're very welcome to just keep in touch or email any questions. And I'm always happy to help just pop, put them in the right direction if they need to get tests in another country. Because, I'm, you know, if you know what tests you should be doing, then it may be easy just to ask for them and pay for them in the country or wherever you need to get them. So, yes, the book itself is really self-explanatory and goes through my seven-step brain protection plan. So the earlier we can start on protecting our brain, the better. Marilyn, thank you so much for being my special guest today. This has been an awesome interview. 
Thank you. Very welcome to be, and uh, thank you very much for the invitation. All right, that wraps up this very special episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show with Dr. Marilyn Glenville. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. And I'd like to invite you back next time for another episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc. Have a great week, everyone. You've been listening to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carey is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carey is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please tell your friends about the Functional Medicine Radio Show, and we'll see you next week with more from Dr. Carey.